The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today we continue last Monday's discussion of consciousness and the significance of out-of-body experiences with our guest, Thomas D. Abraham. Thomas is a Ph.D. student of cognitive neuroscience at the City University of New York and also uh, a volunteer and researcher with the International Academy of Consciousness, uh, the IAC, a research and education-based nonprofit organization that offers classes and workshops on out-of-body experiences psychic development, and ethics. And Thomas recently relocated back to Colorado, where he is continuing his research at the University of Denver. He's an organizer for the Denver Near-Death Experience Group and has been coordinating uh, local events for the IAC. Thomas, welcome back to NDE Radio. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Oh, It's, it's great. We can continue this, and uh, Skype is up and running again. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, last week... Um, we talked about developing a uh, cosmoethical understanding through out-of-body ex- exploration. But those who've seen the movie uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, no governments and corporations will try to use uh, remote viewing and any other techniques for spying or stealing secrets or planting lies. So what's to stop the United States or Russia or China from using OBEs for uh, such purposes? Really nothing. I mean, how could you stop that? Um, and, and that's an unfortunate, uh, you know, direction that, that some may, people may uh, choose to take. Uh, our hope is that in having direct experience with these, uh, with these states and coming to that realization of being a multidimensional consciousness that's, you know, literally interconnected and interwoven into the very fabric of life itself, that that kind of epiphany may change our affinities a little bit so that, you know, uh, we may see the air of, <laughs> of that other uh, more nefarious uh, direction. Um, and I, I always kind of muse at that because it is kind of a funny thing that, you know, here you are with this realizing yourself as this, you know, um, consciousness that's so much beyond your physical body, and yet this is the best that you've come up to, to do with it, is to spy on a, on a neighboring country. It, it's really kind of silly. Um, and it very much reflects a materialistic, short-sighted ethics, not a very um, universalistic ethics, of course. Right. Has the IAC ever been approached by a uh, uh, government with something like that in mind? or um, Have you heard, heard of any I, cases like that? I have heard of cases like that. I don't know that our organization specifically has been approached. Uh, I know the other organizations that have. Um and I think part of it is that we have flown under the radar for quite some time. I mean, we're, we're not as well known of a name. Um, but, you know, that, that could certainly change as we, as we are, you know, branching out and, uh, and, um, you know, participating in more of these, uh, national conferences and things that, uh, you know, such as the SSE and some of these that our speakers have gone to. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I can tell you um, that's something we would not be interested in, but you right. know, they can certainly ask. <laughs> yeah. 
What would the possibilities be of while you're out of body running into somebody like that from, uh, you know, from the CIA, for instance? Uh, certainly anything's possible. Um, one thing that we find, though, is that where you tend to, to go most easily is, and I'm going to say places if it's a place, but you think more of a dimension. We find ourselves in dimensions where we have a lot of affinity, right? So we're more likely to meet other people that are kind of like us, essentially, that are you know, kind of at this certain level, which, which uh, may also be why it's sometimes difficult to, to get direct contact with your spiritual guides because they are operating at a higher frequency, um, for lack of a better word. Likewise, it's, it's also a little bit difficult to find yourself in the most awful and depraved environments that are out there as well because we don't have affinities to that. Um, but that's not to say that it's, it's not possible. Um, it's just saying that where we, we're most likely to go is somewhere where we have uh, a lot more affinity. Mm. So in that respect, if you had, let's say, a, a friend or a colleague that is also practicing uh, lucid projection and you guys have been talking and, and things, it's much easier to encounter that person out of the body, for example, than, say, someone that's with the... Um, you know, trying to do espionage or something like that. What would the difference be between um, OBEs and um, remote viewing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I kind of think of remote viewing almost as like you're bringing the information to you. So it's almost like watching, I'll just say for lack of a better example, it's like, you know, the difference between visiting Spain versus watching a documentary about Spain at home. Um, I think what is really occurring during a remote viewing episode is that you're, you know, kind of out of phase a little bit with your consciousness and, and are actually part of your consciousness is definitely tapping into that uh, information uh, and, and ex- you know, kind of directly resonating with it. But the subjective experience, the, let's say the quality of the experience is not being there. It's that you're kind of receiving information. Whereas with the out-of-body experience, um, with high lucidity, that environment, you will be immersed as, as being there. And you'll be in a, perceive yourself in a body, which we call the psychosoma. Oftentimes you'll refer to as the astral body, smooth body. There's any number of synonyms for this. Uh, and that body will look very much like your physical body. Um, it will even be wearing clothes as a kind of a, almost a projection of our own um, self-image, essentially. Um, but there's some other attributes of that body, such as you know, the ability to permeate walls or elasticity, for example. You can kind of grab your own fingers and pull them and watch them stretch. So um, importantly, you will know, in a degree of high lucidity, you will know that you were at that physical environment. You were there um, versus just kind of getting information or perceiving it, if that makes sense. Um, and so kind of getting back to that Spain example, it's like if you're, you're, you're touring Madrid, for example, you, you wouldn't doubt that you're actually walking the streets, for example, in your physical body any more than you would uh, in the out-of-body experience. You would know that you were there. Uh, well, one of the things you've mentioned as being a, a targeted uh, area is that space between lives where, you, uh, where someone who's having an out-of-body experience will intentionally go to uh, the time between their past life and this life, wh- what have they seen in that in that environment? Yeah, oftentimes um, there's actually a, a great, um, I believe, Brazilian-produced uh, movie called No Solar, which really kind of explores that time between lives. Uh, it is a um, 
you know, a uh, dramatic cinema piece, but I believe it was actually based on some, um, you know, some kind of information that's being presented there that seems to be pretty reflective of this. In any case, um, you know, these types of environments may in some ways resemble our physical lives where we would see like structures or buildings um, and almost like physical places. But we tend to be, you know, again, uh, encountering colleagues and, and other consciousness that may themselves be between lives, but people we've known in past lives um, and people that we probably will have work with in the future. Um, you know, these environments, of course, will be kind of perceived differently depending on the, the person projecting. And of course, um, you know, we may not all be coming from the same hometown, so there's some variability uh, in those types of locations. But um, certainly, I would encourage the listeners to to think about this and try to target this because, you know, it definitely can be very illuminating even into, like, what our purpose in this life is, um, kind of reconnecting with some of the planning phase that we went through in preparation to come here. Um, also, you know, this is a good way to kind of connect with some of your spiritual guidance as well. Um, um, I don't know what else. What else can I tell you about that? Um, we had a we had yeah. a guest who uh, recently who said that when she was in um, she was in a, she was having a near death experience basically, and she said as she was walking with the spirit guide through this beautiful um, uh, garden or field, I guess uh, she said as the she had the sense that as it passed by over her. It disappeared, and the spirit guide explained that this was created to make her feel comfortable, and um, and so there was it was like a special effect for that individual. Do you suppose that we all have that kind of reaction between lives as well? Certainly, and I think it, a lot of the um, individual differences would depend on the state of the consciousness. You know, someone that's kind of passed on with you know, full lucidity and awareness is going to have a quite a different experience than someone who is less lucid, maybe a little bit more pathological, um, more kind of akin to being stuck to attachments of this past incarnation. Um, and I think the near-death experience itself is somewhat of a special case. Um, if, if you were to really kind of disentangle some of the differences between an NDE and an OBE, um, we would still say it has this out-of-body experience component and would be thought of as like kind of a forced projection, if you will, as opposed to one provoked by will. But oftentimes, I, I, you know, in the NDE experiences that I've read and talked to people about, it seems like a, a very much an, almost an intervention or a course correction. Uh, and, and people dramatically change the direction of their lives and try to reintegrate into their, you know, their purpose for being here. And so I think that sometimes those environments that uh, NDEers find themselves in are almost a little bit more specialized and customized because a lot of work has been put into place in order to bring them there so that they can have this kind of tailored experience versus, you know, um, you know, the whole spectrum of out-of-body experiences can be anything from like, well, you, you fell asleep and you found yourself kind of like floating around your bedroom uh, in a semi-lucid, you know, not very aware state and then came immediately back to the, to the bed or to the, to the body and it's, of course, like a little bit more mundane on the whole scheme of things. Um, not to say that these really uh, intense and life-changing experiences can't happen with OBEs. They certainly do, and that's kind of the objective. That's why we would want to train this to do this at will so we can kind of get to these some of these benefits, benefits and after effects of the NDE without actually having to have the NDE itself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly in the case that you're talking about, I think that 
you know, there was some spiritual guides and, and, you know, maybe a team of extra physical consciousnesses trying to facilitate uh, that condition for that specific circumstance. Um, so if, if someone has an NDE and they come back and they say, I've seen heaven or I've seen God, they might have less uh, an accurate representation of, of heaven and God than someone who can recall an actual death experience and and in an OBE relive that time between lives. Right. I think, you know, the words that we use are, are kind of interesting. We, we are using words that are from our own conditioning of being in the physical body. Our concept of God, for example, um, is not even the tip of the fingernail of the complexity of the universe, right? It's just a, it's a label that allows us to easily associate some ideas. Um, and that can be an illuminating concept. If we reflect on that, it can open and act as a pointer to a much bigger, wider reality. Unfortunately, it can also be a very limited construct as it becomes a fixed idea. And so when people kind of go over and they're bringing some of their own conditioning um, and biases, it also can kind of skew the interpretation of the experience. But I think the most important thing is what they come back with at, at almost like an emotional and psychological level. I don't think it's problematic that, that you know, end of years, say they experienced heaven, um, as long as they're communicating that um, universalistic love that, that, as, that comes as an after effect of being there. Now, what we call heaven is really kind of biased by our own interpretation of what that even means. Um, you know, it's, to us, it would just be, you know, a positive extra physical reality. But, you know, this is something that we can use the out-of-body experience to really kind of get a corroborative evidence of what's going on there. Um, um, and certainly even that a lot of the end of years that I've, that I've spoken to that talk about heaven also acknowledge that we're in a kind of multi-existential cycle or a uh, cycle of reincarnation that we've had and will continue to have many lifetimes which is, of course, not very congruent with our traditional uh, Catholic uh, concept of heaven. So, yeah, I think, I think that, um, you know, the terminology is sometimes a little bit confusing, but I don't have any doubts that uh, the end of years are reaching something that would be a, an approximation of what our concept of heaven is. It's just maybe not such a fixed concept that we have here on Earth, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. If... Um if an, a near-death experience is an intervention, especially designed for that particular person, then uh, distressing NDEs where people have visions of uh, demons or isolation or, or even hell um, would also be a specially designed um, intervention. Do, do your OBE experiences reflect any um, reward or punishment system on the other side? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it reward or punishment. Um, I think that's a kind of an oversimplification. But you could imagine that, if, let's say, we'll just throw up a hypothetical, you're, a, you're very, very pathological in this physical life, and you have maybe some severe addictions and you know, some kind of depraved um, behaviors and mental postures. Well, that can continue on after death, of course. And because of that aspect of affinities that we talked about, you'll find yourself amongst others that are in that same state. And, uh, you know, last time we talked about this concept of phocenes and holothocenes. Well, you know, everyone having the same kind of thoughts and emotional quality and energies can create these kind of manufactured environments that 
very much would resemble what we might call hell, okay? But is a punishment system of like, you know, these are the people that did not follow the specific uh, doctrine. That, that's not really how we see it. We see it as maybe, you know, a uh, uh, collection of lost, confused, you know, not very lucid and highly pathological consciousness that we see as a temporary condition. Now, it may last for a long time. When I say temporary, it could be the equivalent of many, many Earth lifetimes that might, someone might find them stuck in this environment. But it's not an eternal damnation. It's, a, it's really kind of a matter of you know, helping these consciousnesses wake up, regain lucidity, and start making the conscious and volitional choice to improve. Mm. And you know, eventually we would hope and expect that these people would re-enter the physical life cycle again so they can accumulate more experience and, and work on their maturity. So if the vibration, the phosine that we send out, is of a low-grade quality and it draws us to others uh, who have similar low-grade qualities, uh, you're saying that that would be a form of hell? It, it would, to the perceiver, yeah. I mean, it, it's hell in the sense of, like, we find ourselves in a negative and sorrowful type of environment. Mm. It's not hell in the sense of, you know, uh, I don't believe a, like, deity dictating punishment. It's more karmic in the sense of, like, this is what we're resonating with, and this is what we have find affinities to, and therefore we find ourselves there. Right. Um, so how, how do we, how do we uh, stop ourselves from falling into that same pattern? How do we, uh, how, how do we save ourselves, if, if it, you know, if you want to describe it that way? Right. Well, so the bigger question is how do we change our affinities? How do we improve our affinities? Right. Right. And, and there again comes into the idea of cosmoethics. And our expression of cosmoethics is going to be reflective of our level of maturity. So it's not to say that, you know, in my current present state of being that I'm going to have the, the best absolute, you know, uh, archetypal expression of cosmoethics, but I am hopefully working to do the best I can. And that's all, that's all that anyone can ask is that, you know, you're in working in the best you can with the best that you know with the information that you have. Um, and, you know, hopefully that is a continual process of improvement. You know, it may take several lives to really get there. But, um, you know, hopefully we're seeing some improvement and maturation of the consciousness. Um, and I think that, you know, another aspect of this is as, more and more people start kind of resonating with these more positive thinking and, and, and ideas, it starts to create a, a field of energies, right? And so either other consciousnesses that are kind of interconnected with us, even if they're not directly physically connected to us, start to benefit from that higher vibration resonation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone like, you know, you and I are talking, but that's creating an energetic field other people listening to these ideas start to like resonate at that frequency. And I think that anyone kind of caught in the web of that stands to benefit. Right. Um, and it goes back to, I believe you were talking about the last week about, um, you know, the effects of meditation and yes. um, how that resonates out. Right. So same kind of idea. So we have to hope that the people that use OBEs for, um, growing and, uh, Meditation for growing are are going to somehow out their phosines are going to somehow outweigh the CIA guys who are trying to or corporations who are trying to steal secrets. In other well, words, it's, <laughs> it's certainly a much more sustainable model if you think about it. 
when you think about where we are as a planet right now, um, pushing ourselves, you know, past the point of the planet's ability to sustain life, for example, um, you know, whether or not we're successful in this, I think it's a it's an important endeavor to take on that we are, you know, hopefully trying to raise the the vibration, if you will. And I, I, these, are, of course, are metaphorical words. I don't necessarily mean the literal vibration, but, you know, if we're raising the vibration of the planet, raising the frequency of the planet through better manifestations of our own phocenes, um, hopefully we can, we can hope that there's a positive net effect to that and that uh, more and more people will, will start to kind of experience these, um, you know, I guess more cosmoethical principles. Right. Now, you have talked about um, going out almost as a missionary uh, into an out-of-body area where someone, some spirits you find uh, are perhaps addicted or obsessed with something from their past lives, and you can somehow lend them energy to get beyond uh, their current state of affairs. How, how does that work? Well, um, you can think of the, for one thing, um, we have this kind of dense energetic body that acts as the mediator between the astral body and the physical body. Um, this is, comprises the chakra system of the body. And when we have, a, have an out-of-body experience, it, it elongates and stretches, and that's what forms the, the silver cord, which maybe you've heard about or read about. Um, and so this dense energetic body has a lot of, um, you know, utility in that respect, um, in that we can, we can lend the energies from that our bioenergies, essentially. And, um, you know, sometimes a lot of the pathology of the consciousness between lives can be, you know, needing that energy, needing some, some um, you know, they're essentially like almost an energetically anemic. But, um, you know, this is definitely going to vary on a case-by-case basis. Um, it certainly depends on the uh, particular situation, you know, of, of, the, of the consciousness in need. And, um, of course, the, the spiritual guides will be there uh, generally facilitating these types of actions. So it's not, I don't want to give the impression that's me out there cowboying, going it alone, saving consciousness. <laughs> the experience <laughs> I, I found myself in was really, um, I would say, assisted in the sense that I was kind of like, not just a fly in the wall, I was helping, but it was kind of like, you know, like my toddler helping me do the dishes. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of learning what yes. this whole thing's about. <laughs> You know, I'm not by any means like leading the charge here, um, but the the helpers or spiritual guides definitely can use those dense physical energies as um, that kind of uh, energosoma we call it, um, which they can actually kind of purpose that for assistance, and um, you know, you you're basically lending your energies to be existential. Do you think there's any danger in doing something like that that they might take over? Uh move in on your spirit? No, I mean, you know, uh, I think of the, you know, that's one of the big fears, of course, of, of having out-of-body experiences. Like, well, while I'm out, maybe a, you know, less than uh, reputable consciousness might step into my body and take over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we think of it as kind of like a lock and key mechanism. So because your energetic body is directly coupled with your physical body and your extra physical astral body, um, it's, it's really a one-to-one relationship between those things. So it's not like something else can just step into that place. Um, we do have to be careful how we use our energies and really, you know, we don't want to be even in the physical body, 
we don't want to be careless with our energies and start to couple with more pathological um, consciousness and then not have a, a means to decouple, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the techniques that we do in the classes, for example, is a, is a um, we call it a VLO, which I won't go into too much about the acronym, but it's a circulation of the energies in the body, uh, bringing them to a high vibration, raising the frequency essentially, and cleansing all of the chakras in route. Uh, and this helps to kind of break up any attachments or affinities and also, um, you know, uh, can allow us to be in a little bit denser, more negative environments without necessarily becoming directly physically and extra physically um, affected ourselves in a negative way, if that makes sense. So it's energetic self-defense. And these types of self-defense we can do outside of the body and it's certainly encouraged outside of the body. Um, And we'll also help raise the acidity of the person too. That's one of our techniques for kind of waking up a little bit more when you get out of the body. (laughs) You've said... um cryogenics is a stupid idea and that death is important for our for our growth basically so that we have the opportunity to move on and experience new new lives and have um, new insights um and you met and there's a term that i you coined that i didn't quite understand which is morphophocine a crystallized vibration i think you described it as is that yeah. the same thing as uh, as cryogenics uh, no, not exactly. So, uh, morphothocene would be, uh, let's say, you know, we all got together in a room and we just put our thoughts on this imaginary apple that was sitting in the center of the room and we all just thought really, really hard about it, put our energies and exteriorized energies towards it. Then someone else maybe had an out-of-body experience and was looking at this. They might actually visually see an apple there. It's like the, the thoughts that we are all sending out become a pattern and that pattern has a, you know, a subtle vibration and becomes that apple. Uh, um, it's not, re- you know, it could be dissipated, and we could exteriorize energies towards it and dissipate it. But the more we can think of, like, thoughts and, and patterns coalescing on similar ideas, these things can be a little bit more and more crystallized um, on the astral plane. And so the example I gave was the painting, for example. You know, if, if you had a painting on the wall for decades and people are looking at it and thinking about it and, you know, thosinizing towards it, um, someone, even if a painting was moved, someone could, you know, project that location and, and see that painting still on the wall as if it was physically there. When really right. it's just the, the thought reflection of it. Um, I got, with respect I got to you. Cryogenics. Um, that was really more about, and I, I, I know that there's actually a more accurate term for this, but anything that that is trying to extend physical life indefinitely, to me is is you know, a way of kind of cutting us off from this uh, reincarnation process and from really the experiential uh, benefits of having multiple lives, right? So it's, it reflects an ethic that's rooted in root physicality as opposed to cosmoethics, if that makes mm. sense. Yes. Wow. Uh, I did have one last question, and uh, not much time left, but um, there was, uh, when we were talking about uh, a person going back in an out-of-body experience to the time between lives, do you think they're actually going back to um, the actual experience or are they drawing information from some collective uh, source of information? Um, you know, they, they talk about all consciousness being contained and all knowledge being contained in one place. Are they, are they actually going back in time, do you think, or are they just... Um, 
drawing these memories out of a, a memory bank, a cloud, if you will? That's a that's a really interesting question, and um, it seems the more subtle the dimension, the less that time is even a construct. Whereas we experience, and a lot of our interpretation coming back, we are experiencing things in a linear time. When you talk to a lot of people that have an NDE, for example, and, and they have been to this uh, nonlinear, equiprobable space of pure mentality, right, and then trying to come back, and that's why it is ineffable, some of these experiences, how they're trying to come back and, and express it in a linear fashion as if it was a sequence of events. Um, so I think that it, there's a lot of dependencies that, that happen when we're having this out-of-body experience. When we are kind of targeting that extra-physical hometown, we're actually trying to target it as if it was a place, a place that we've been between lives, a place where our colleagues may be uh, there, you know, working on their skills to prepare for this next life, you know, um, you know, where we have a lot of karmic affinities, for example. So we're trying to target as a place. But certainly during an out-of-body experience or even in the body, we can have retrocognitions or memories of past lives uh, that can come to us. And we may even draw memories of that extra-physical uh, intermissive period that happened between lives, as a, almost like as a memory, if that makes sense. Mm. Well... Thomas, we're just about out of time. Uh, I, I know we, uh, I asked you this on uh, the last, um, the end of the last show, but how can listeners find out more about your research and, and, uh, OBEs generally? Yeah, absolutely. So I would definitely, um, direct people towards my organization's website that I volunteer with called the International Academy of Consciousness, www.iacworld.org. Um, and if you want to read my work and work of, uh, my colleagues, uh, we have our own journal called the Journal of Conscientiology, or J of C, and the website is jofc.org. Uh, and you can also link to that from the first website I gave. Oh, thanks so much, Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. my thanks. Really appreciate it. Okay, my my thanks to Thomas Abraham for for sharing his research and his story. And if you'd like to listen to the show again, or his uh, the part one of this show, which uh, just find on on our website or any other of our previous programs, please visit uh, nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at iands.org. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.